I'm Dr. Ashley McClure, a primary care physician, co-founder of the nonprofit Climate Health Now, and mom. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Anthony Eiten, who is a senior VP for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment and lecturer on public policy advocacy at UC Berkeley. He oversees the California Endowment's $1 billion statewide commitment to advancing policies and forging partnerships to build healthy communities in a healthy California. Listen in to hear the reasons why evidence shows that democracy is good for our health and how it is insufficient to try to treat social ills with pills. We as physicians can do more, and Dr. Eiten tells us how. So if you could start out with sharing what you're doing now, and then we'll go backwards in how you got there. That'd be wonderful. Well, first of all, it's nice to be on your show. The best way to describe what I'm doing now is I'm the senior vice president at a foundation, a health foundation. And most people don't know what health foundations are. Our foundation is, it's kind of like a private public health department. Our mission is to improve the health status of all Californians and to make measurable change in access to health care for low-income Californians. And we've approached that mission with a kind of an interest in trying to understand what really causes health. If you're trying to improve health status, what are the fundamental root causes, the social determinants of health, and how do we actually intervene in a positive way at those root causes across a state as large and diverse as California? And what we've concluded, you know, interestingly enough, is that the things that most people think cause health are, are really not the significant drivers of health, and that health is fundamentally about opportunity and hope and people's ability to essentially navigate their environments in a way that allows them to exercise their, you know, their skills and their talents. We have structured a society that creates barrier to people being able to pursue opportunity. And so our work is really about dismantling those barriers and kind of unleashing, you know, people's natural talents onto California. So that's a kind of a lofty way of describing what we do, but but mm-hmm. that's fundamentally what we do. No, it's amazing. It's so inspiring and just I couldn't think of a more, you know, important cause. So so you have more training than most people in many lifetimes. So you went to law school and medical school and you did an MPH. Could you, well, first it'd be great to hear, like, what made you choose to go to medical school? I suppose that somewhere early on in my life, very early on, because I told my mother I wanted to be a doctor when I was four years old. And when <laughs> wow. I was, That's yeah, pretty early. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I don't know what made me, I, my mother was a nurse, and I mean, she's still alive, but, you know, she's 93. Um, and, you know, I guess I was just interested in what she was doing. I mean, she would, you know, have her nursing equipment and she would tell me about what she was doing. And it sounded really cool to me. I don't know where the medicine doctor part came from, but I decided I wanted to be a doctor early on. And then when I was 12, this was after having read a few books about famous uh, doctors, uh, Albert Schweitzer, uh, this doctor by the name of William Osler, um, this other doctor by the name of uh, Wilder Penfield. I, I decided not only that I want to be a doctor, but I, I decided where I wanted to go to medical school. And that was Johns Hopkins Medical School. And, and I sort of set on this course from age 12 to age 22 to go to Johns Hopkins. And I, and I did. Ended up there at 
the age of 22 and was really kind of taken by what I was seeing in the vicinity of the medical school in East Baltimore. It struck me as something that was quite unnecessary and, and shocking. And Baltimore is in the mid-1980s when I got there was kind of a horrific slump. You know, it was in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic, HIV AIDS was just taking off and, and the reaction uh, to policing in, in that city was very militaristic. Um, so you had helicopters and sort of big armored troop carriers and just sort of a, this constant sort of feeling of a war zone. And on top of that, you had all of this blight with bombed out buildings and cars that were burnt out and up on jacks and mangy dogs wandering around and garbage piled up to your knees and babies playing in and amongst all of this. And I, I just, I couldn't make sense out of it. It was such a completely shocking thing to see in the United States of America, which in my mind, having come from Canada, was this glowing example of first world success. And here you had this literally third world city immediately adjacent to what was reputed to be one of the best medical schools in the world. So that galvanized me to, to sort of recalculate what I thought was at the root of health. Um, and it wasn't these sort of august medical science institutions but there was something else, and I was set on this sort of path to try to understand what is that. Yeah, because you had first-class medical care, as Don Berwick calls them, our re repair shops. But the environment outside was determining everything but health. Right, and, and the, the environment was literally causing illness. You know, so I would see these young, most of the time African-American children and families in the halls of Johns Hopkins Medical School. I would see them in the emergency room and on the wards. And I recall this sort of moment when I realized that I, what I was being asked to do was to treat social ills with pills. It didn't make any sense to me. I, I didn't have a pill to address chronic unemployment or long-term kind of marginalization from all of the mainstream structures of opportunity. It made me think there's got to be something more than just this medicalized approach to this problem. Was there a particular patient that brought that clarity or was it kind of the whole milieu? There were a couple. I remember one in particular, this young kid, probably 12 years old. I was doing a surgery rotation and the, I was in the clinic and he came in and he had been shot and, you know, several weeks before and had surgery. Part of his recovery required that he had an ostomy bag, which is basically just sort of a drain on his abdomen that would drain his intestines while his intestines healed so that he'd have a subsequent surgery to reconnect. And, um, you know, he'd been sent home with an ostomy bag and came back into the clinic for a follow-up. And he had basically a glad kitchen bag, you know, like one of those sandwich bags over his ostomy. And his, his stump was was raw and red and inflamed. And, and I was horrified. So, you know, obviously I cleaned him up, reattached him to an ostomy bag. And and, and asked him, you know, can I speak to his parents? And he said, I don't know where they are. And, and I said, well, who brought you here? And he said, I came by myself. This 12-year-old kid. And he literally had been taking care of his ostomy himself with, you know, rubber bands and glad sandwich bags. I said, well, where's your mom? He said, she's on crack. And I said, where's your dad? He said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know my dad. Well, where do you live? I live with my grandma. Well, where is she? I don't know. She's on the street somewhere. You know, I was like, I can't, I can't do this in a 15-minute intervention in a cubicle with this kid. I can't just send this kid 
back out into the streets with, you know, with ostomy supplies. And so that was sort of like a, you know, pivotal moment for me. It just made me think that how are we, how are we failing so badly mm-hmm. that this is the situation that I'm confronted with? How impossible the situation is to address as a medical student when the the odds are stacked against the healing, really. And I think you've spoken about that too in, in other conversations I've heard about changing the odds. And so was there another story you wanted to share about medical school and how that clarity of the challenge? Oh, there are, there are just so many. I mean, the, the, I think the challenge for me as an African-American young man at the time was really identifying with my patients. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I saw me in them and, mm-hmm. and I recognized that the environment in which they were growing up, they had no control over. They didn't create it. They were just dropped into it. And I would think about how would I have fared in that environment? I grew up in a very well-invested environment in Montreal, Canada, you know, where there was universal health care, universal child care, universal dental care, paid sick leave, all of these investments in social infrastructure, park, museums, and community centers. I felt like I was invested in. I felt like that society cared about my well-being. I had no hand in creating the Canadian society in which I grew up, just as these young people that were, for all intents and purposes, me, had no hand in creating the environment in East Baltimore, yet they had to navigate it every single day of their lives. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, I was seeing myself and the shared humanity between myself and the patients and recognizing the absurdity of the just disparate conditions that characterized where I grew up and where they were growing up. And, mm-hmm. and it just felt fundamentally unfair to me. If there's a single motivating factor in my life, it's injustice. And I felt like I needed to tackle this uh, in some meaningful way. The way you captured it is I was being asked to treat social ills with pills. And I think that's something that I grapple with every day in clinic. You know, it feels like just inadequate um, when the root cause is so much deeper. And I think, you know, in medicine, we really value how prevention is the best medicine and the most elegant treatment is the root cause. It's not the Band-Aid. And that's why I think kind of the physician voice, the medical community moving into these spaces very vocally um, in advocating for social determinants determining health is is really elegant medicine, you know, and that's and, and more effective medicine, frankly. How so? I've also heard a lot about the kind of landmark work that you've done in studies that look at the lifespan um, association with zip codes. Can you carry us how from kind of that medical school experience? How did you then? Um, start to to do those studies that really open so many eyes about um, how place determines health? Well, there are a number of things that, that I did during medical school that changed my life trajectory. One of the things I decided to do was walk across the street from medical school to the School of Public Health and get to know some of the uh, professors over there. And one of them, a woman by the name of Karen Davis, hooked me up with a uh, an externship in the U.S. Senate. Uh, with Senator Kennedy in the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee. And so I worked there for several months um, while I was in medical school and, you know, was exposed to really policymakers and most of whom were lawyers. And I found them to be much more thoughtful and intelligent in their understanding of the inadequacies of our health system as compared to the Hopkins medical experts that I was working with who really had a very narrow kind of view of medicine, which was highly focused on individual treatment. And I think that that's the big challenge is the 
the difference in perspective between a micro perspective, which is on, you know, how do you best treat this particular patient in front of you, and a macro perspective, which is, you know, what are the conditions that create uh, essentially health trajectories in a population? You know, that micro perspective is inadequate for essentially the big health problems that we're facing at the, at the macro level. And, you know, I, I quickly became aware of the fact that the paradigm in medical school, there were basically three. One was behavioral, that people sort of behave badly and they smoke and they drink and they drive without seatbelts and you've got to change their behaviors. That's your goal in, in the 15 minute encounter in a cubicle. The second paradigm was basically a transactional paradigm, which is that the quality of technology, the services, um, you know, the quality of health insurance, uh, access to pharmaceutical drugs, those were the things that differentiated between good health outcomes and bad health outcomes. And the third one was largely a genetic paradigm that, you know, it's basically a lottery. Some people got good genes, some people got bad genes. And, you know, the bad gene folks, you've got to work with their physiology to try to alter it chemically to try to optimize its performance in the face of sort of bad genes. And all three of those things make sense, individual clinical paradigm. They're very narrow and micro, but they make sense when you're just seeing patient after patient after patient. But when you're looking at a population like East Baltimore or South Los Angeles or East Oakland, you can't use any of those paradigms to analyze what you're seeing. The work that you know I became interested in doing came from East Baltimore because I saw those conditions and I said, there's no way these conditions aren't impacting people's health status. And we just need to be able to show that. So when I subsequently became the director of public health in uh, Alameda County, which was many years later, you know, I had uh, my team do an analysis using death certificates um, to calculate essentially average life expectancy in different neighborhoods across Alameda County. And we found these dramatic differences on the order of 22 years in just in the city of Oakland. And we published this, became a front page news story in the San Francisco Chronicle and eight part series in the uh, what was then the Oakland Tribune and the Contra Costa Times. And um, it led to, you know, significant um, attention on this issue of health equity. And, um, you know, being able to quantify it in this way was important for people because many people kind of never assumed that you could measure the impact of these social conditions on on something like health status, and in this case, life expectancy, and, and you can. And so that was, I think, a little bit of a game changer in people's ability to sort of use data to demonstrate the consequences of these socio-ecological milieus on people's well-being. And so that was, the, for me, kind of the pinnacle of, the, of that, that inflection point in, in, in sort of social determinants of health. People could now talk about quantifying the impact of the environment on health. Amazing. I'm so grateful to you for, for leading that because it seems so obvious now, but you had to, to lead it. Then going to the, the macro environmental impact, the climate crisis, in your life, when, when did you first start to see and understand the impact of the climate crisis and what it is doing and will do to all of these social and structural determinants of health? And when did you start to see it as a, as a, as a health issue? Yeah, honestly, I, I have to give credit to Al Gore and An Inconvenient Truth. I mean, that was, for me, it was a shocking, eye-opening expose of climate crisis. And, you know, I saw that and it changed me, you know, kind of irrevocably. I, I hadn't had a sense of the sort of the scale of the problem 
and its momentum. Um, and that movie kind of changed it for me because it made me understand that, you know, we were headed in a direction barreling towards kind of a cliff and that there was a need to sort of like start digging in some breaks uh, to slow this whole thing down. In the years since that time, you know, I've certainly become aware of the, you know, the inextricable connections between climate change and essentially health equity. We started saying in Alameda County that as long as you're generating waste, kind of oblivious kind of way, you know, that we're going to, you know, have industries that generate carbon emissions, we're going to have other industries that generate toxic emissions. When you have a societal order that essentially is based on the exploitation of people with less power, that waste is going to be concentrated in the environments of those same people. So you can't have health equity if you don't have ecological equity, you know, some sort of balance in, in how we manage our ecology. Because as soon as that gets out of balance, people are going to push waste towards people with the least amount of power. When I, when I say waste, I mean also land uses that are essentially less valuable. Um, so people will be living close to precipitous, you know, living right up against floodwaters, living, uh, you know, right up against fire zones. And the people that are going to have to experience those environments are those that have the least amount of power. And in this society, because of the legacy of apartheid and racism and slavery and segregation and all of the various interlocking uh, inequities, those will disproportionately be black and brown people, in some cases, exclusively black and brown people. So you can't separate, you know, climate change from health equity. Those two things are mutually dependent, inextricably intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. There's a quote from Hop Hopkins from the Sierra Club, and he kind of captures that sentiment in a way that I refer back to all the time, which is that we can't have climate change without sacrifice zones. We can't have sacrifice zones without disposable people. And we can't have disposable people without racism. Here, we're in the East Bay. Right now, the BACMED, the air district who regulates our air quality, is, is having hearings to decide if the Chevron refinery should have to put a retrofit on their exhaust systems to capture 50 to 75 percent of their particulate matter pollution. They're you know wondering if that should be required. And in Richmond, which is up against that refinery as a frontline community, it's 90 percent plus people of color. I am convinced that that conversation wouldn't even happen if it was in Piedmont, you know, or in Montclair. And it's infuriating that that there's a question. Of course, we should do everything we can to clean up everybody's air. But it's a, it's a conversation, you know, like, does this matter is basically what's being asked. At its root, it's about dehumanization. It's, it's about perceptions of people as being less valuable, less worthy, less human than others. And until we grapple with that fundamental devaluation of human beings, which is at the heart of racism. Racism is a system of power that essentially manifests itself across lines of race and class, where at the bottom of that, people are considered, as you put it, disposable, but fundamentally disposable because they're less human, less valuable. And that is a toxic mentality. You know, it's, it's intertwined actually with extreme capitalism. It's the same sort of basic mindset. And I'm not saying that I'm anti-capitalism. I'm not. I mean, Canada is a capitalist country. Sweden is a capitalist country. But they manage to balance the extremes of capitalism with more robust democracy. And so that there's sort of political control 
over the extremes. And so the decision that you're talking about with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District in Chevron, there's more power of the Air Quality Management District and the political mechanisms to manage the extremes of capitalism, which is, you know, the extremes of capitalism ignore the externalities that just push the pollution out and say, it's not my problem. Yeah, it's basically an issue of people versus profits. What what do we value more? more? I mean, how do, how do you see an understanding of the existential threat of the climate crisis? How does that, you know, the physicians that you mentioned, um, Dr. Osler or Schweitzer, how would you see them responding to the climate crisis? Like, what would they be doing with our current situation on the climate crisis? I think the doctor that I think I would cite most eagerly in this instance is Virchow, Rudolf Virchow, who was one of the early social epidemiologists and, you know, was able to analyze something like a typhus outbreak in a way that implicated the social structure and political structure of Prussian political regime, you know, went to Eastern Silesia and could, you know, identify essentially social inequity as the driver of a typhus uh, outbreak. I don't think William Osler or Wilder Penfield, possibly Albert Schweitzer, would have been able to do that. So I do I do think that we do have a, a, a crisis in this country, which is not just about sort of, you you know, how we're barreling towards this cliff of climate change, but fundamentally how we treat problems, social problems. We, I argue that we treat these issues as technocratic problems, things to solve with technology and science and whittle them down to their fundamental dimensions and find some sort of technological solution. And in fact, they're not technocratic problems. They're democratic problems. Mm -hmm. And they're fundamentally about the the weakness of our democracy. And until we recognize and start to apply democratic solutions to these problems, we will continue to struggle to manage them. And that climate change, health equity, many social justice problems that are now impacting all of us, including white people who are, you know, in rural America, who are not understanding some of the factors that are driving their suffering, are misinterpreting it, you know, politically and, and then leading to things like what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. Fundamentally, the weakness of our democracy is driving our failure to grapple with these uh, more complex problems and, and our belief that we can solve them with technocratic solutions alone. It was very well put that our problems, our social problems are about, we try to solve them with technocratic solutions, but they're democratic, which brings me to a theme I hear in many physician circles about how physicians really should not get political. That's something we kind of stay away from. And I think in the election season of last year, there was a the project called Vote ER, which was about healthcare centers helping our patients to register to vote in a very political but not partisan way. And I think that distinction is very, it can be very clear, but I think people conflate it to the harm of engagement. How do you see the medical community getting over that <laughs> and engaging in, you know, advocacy for a healthy democracy that supports? The science is there. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, people say, oh, you know, we can't get political. Look at the science and, and make your own decisions. At the California Endowment, we spent over the past 10 years over a billion dollars uh, in 14 communities addressing root causes of health disparity. For that money, we learned three things, and I refer to them as A, B, C. And the A is the one I want to emphasize here, which is agency or power. B is 
is for belonging when C is for changing the odds. Agency is, is basically the ability to feel like you can have some control over the things that are happening to you in your life. And every doctor knows the difference between a patient who comes in kind of like slumped over in the chair, talks about how life has got them down and they have no control and, you know, they just, you know, sort of bouncing from thing to thing. You know that that's amongst the most difficult patient you'll have because they're not going to be able to feel like they have control to be able to even follow your advice. And then you have the other extreme, which is the patient who comes in with reams of stuff printed off from the internet who wants, you know, your advice on all of these things that they have read. And you know that that's an annoying patient too, because they'll, they'll spend hours with you, but you know that they are actually, they have agency. They have some sense of control and they're trying to make a difference and you can work with that. And so agency happens at the individual level as well as at the community level. And community level agency is essentially what dictates, what shapes that differential across neighborhoods that I talked about with life expectancy. You can actually correlate the life expectancy differences to differences in small p political power. In other words, the sense of collective agency at the community, which has usually been created over generations of people being marginalized and pushed down and discouraged and, and essentially not listened to. So the, the science behind agency is strong. It shows that, you know, agency is directly correlated with health. And so doctors who say, you know, I can't get political, first of all, they're conflating partisan politics with essentially, you know, participatory politics. In other words, people just robustly participating in their community's issues and holding institutions accountable. There's nothing partisan about that. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that that's good. We're a democratic country. We believe in democracy. We're the longest standing democracy in the world. To say that that's, you know, sort of verboten for doctors is ridiculous. Let me just talk about the B and the C. The B is about belonging. And belonging is kind of like the opposite of racism. That's the way I describe it which is, you know, the ability to be seen and heard and perceived in your full humanity. You know, what you're seeing with the uh, George Floyd protests and the like about Black Lives Matter is essentially a claim of belonging uh, in society, that our stories matter, our lives matter, our humanity matters, and it's not being recognized by state-sanctioned policing, which is essentially murdering people because of a perception of their devaluation in the larger society. A, B, agency belonging in the C is, is fundamentally about changing the odds. And this is this is the one I think that physicians have the hardest time with because physicians are just so micro and so interested in sort of like solutions for individual patients. And they don't understand macro at all uh, for the most part. It's trained out of you in medical school. Changing the odds is essentially looking at the fundamental conditions of opportunity, looking at things like universal health care. We're all going to get sick at some point. We're all going to need health care. Yet we create in the society healthcare as a privilege, not as a right. And so when you do that, you essentially create a class of people who are going to need something fundamental to their well-being, but are going to struggle to find it because they don't have the purchasing power. There's no science in the world that suggests that that's good for overall health in the population. You know, this fundamental notion of changing the odds. And I'm using healthcare as an example. It's a simple one. You could also use access to post-secondary education or access to a quality K-12 education or access to paid sick leave, as we've seen in the COVID-19 crisis. All of these things are manifesting themselves in, in acute vulnerability in populations that then end up in the emergency room, in the ICU, and 
and oftentimes too often dead uh, as a consequence of that social vulnerability that we've manufactured through the absence of affirmative policy. So the ABCs are basically just a way to sort of understand that health is political. At the end of the day, it is political. Small p political. One definition of politics is it's the struggle over the allocation of limited and precious social goods. And some of those precious social goods are things like a grocery store or a park in your neighborhood. Those are health protective amenities that facilitate opportunity for recreation and, and access to clean air. Their, their allocation is determined in a political process. So for a doctor to say, I can't be political is to say, I can't be involved in trying to improve population health. I mean, that's how ignorant that statement is. It's wonderful to to hear you articulate it because, it, you know, I think the people who say it tend to be blinded by the privilege that they're swimming in. And it, it, it can be very hard to engage with that in a way that opens awareness. But coming from somebody like you, it, it means a lot and I think is is really valuable, obviously, to have your voice articulating that with clarity. So thank you. In this climate crisis, you know, equity, multi-layered crisis that we're in with the climate science very clearly <clears throat> telling us that we have nine years to half our emissions and 30 to have a, a zero carbon world. What do you see as the role of the medical community and our opportunity and our obligation in this health crisis? Well, I think it follows from the conversation we just had, which is that if health is political and, and clearly climate change and you know our ecological future is political, then physicians, because physicians are, are credible scientists, people listen to physicians. We've actually polled on this, you know, around COVID-19 and various other things that credible messengers, physicians are typically very high on that list. That's a resource, uh, the ability of physicians to speak credibly about the science, but that's insufficient. Uh, we need both the credible messaging around the science, but also credible messaging around what to do. And that means a political movement. We need to organize people, physicians, politically to shift policies. It's not enough to just spout the science. You actually have to apply that to policy change. And I teach at Berkeley in the School of Public Health, and I teach this public health advocacy that in order to move these policies data is insufficient. You actually have to tell a story, a story that comports with the larger value scheme of Americans. And that story is essentially a story of how we all are mutually dependent. We see this in COVID. We see this in, in climate change that, you know, our fates are inextricably intertwined. And physicians need to start talking about that sort of at the macro level so people understand that we can't solve these things, you know, at an individual level. We have to improve the quality of our democracy so that we can actually take on big problems. Right now, we can't take on big problems. They break down over partisan lines and, you know, kind of partisan narratives, when in fact, these things essentially transcend partisan narratives. This is about our very survival. Absolutely. That's part of why I have co-founded a nonprofit that's called Climate Health Now, and we are about organizing physicians and California medical professionals to advocate politically for equitable climate solutions because there's such a, a gap. And we're also working within like the California Medical Association and the American Medical Association to to bring that, to bring the climate movement and social justice movement really into the organized medicine spaces. And it, it's met with 
challenge. You know, definitely, I think there's always a more urgent challenge that kind of gets prioritized. Last year, it was COVID, which is very understandable, but kind of the, the bigger the bigger crisis keeps getting pushed down to, to a secondary, tertiary priority. Are you involved in organized medicine? A, a little bit. I'm more at organized public health. But, you know, I, I would point out, and I think that you obviously know this, that COVID is a great opportunity. I mean, it's a terrible crisis, but COVID is a direct product of climate change. And the next several pandemics will be as well. And so it's a teaching moment for physicians and the larger society that we're just seeing now the sort of the early manifestations of climate change. And if you think this pandemic was bad, you know, like buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to see a wave of these pandemics as we start to see these climates evolving and, and new vectors of disease migrating into very different uh, climates that they've never been in before and interactions between man and essentially nature that will promote uh, essentially the jump of various different types of infectious diseases into the human population. I would not separate those two things. I would argue that COVID and climate change are, are the same thing and that our strategy has to focus on the root causes of pandemics. And physicians are like the perfect spokespeople for this because of what we've gone through with COVID, what we've seen on the front lines in the emergency room and in our clinics. And we know better than anybody else the consequences of of these unchecked pandemics. And this will not by any stretch of the imagination be the last one. We are actually creating an ecology that is much more likely to generate a global pandemics going forward if we don't get off the course that we're on. I think and have had many conversations about the, the messaging that you're talking about and an, an example of the public health messaging campaign that had great success was through the Tobacco Control Board in California and revealing the duplicitous motivations of big tobacco and revealing them as, you know, untrustworthy, illegitimate, not looking out for our interests. Is the California Endowment doing any work or possibly doing work around like a, a public health messaging campaign from the medical community about the climate crisis in order to build that social understanding and will for the actions that we need? We're focusing at the root cause we think, which is essentially the weakness of our democracy and the lack of meaningful participation of communities that have, in many ways, the most to lose. The enlisting the participation of communities in places like Del Norte, our largest Native American reservation in California, where people have lived in California for thousands of years, 14, 15,000 years, uh, they've been here and managed to live in you know, some balance with the, uh, with the ecology and, 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 and preserve California for the rest of us. Their ability to bring their perspective into the political debate is absolutely critical for us to be able to sort of understand what it will take to sort of balance our role in, in, in the climate. Folks living in the Central Valley, farm workers, uh, folks living down in Imperial County on the Mexican border, they have very little voice, but they have in many ways the most to lose in both California's and the rest of the country's sort of approach to climate change. So our, our focus has really been on the what we consider to be the fundamental driver of inequity, which is the weakness of our democratic systems. In, in addressing big problems. So if we want to get the climate change, it's got to be about organizing and then aligning these constituencies that have all of this power that hasn't been organized and hasn't been brought to bear on, on policy that addresses these large long-term challenges. 
So that's been our approach. You know, we argue that democracy is good for your health, that fundamentally health is political, and that we can't get at any of these big problems without significant organizing and bringing to bear the power of people who have been shut out from the political debate for generations. This makes me feel like I'm on the right path because I'm about to start a, a class, an online class with Marshall Gans, who's a legendary community organizer, and he has been involved in civil rights and the farm workers movement and Obama's campaign. I am glad that you think that's the, the, the way forward, because that's what I'm diving into. Maybe in closing, if you were to be giving advice to a clinical physician who understands and appreciates all of your insight and what you've shared here, and they wanted to help with, you know, addressing the climate equity, racial, kind of the, the determinants of our health, what would you, what would your advice be to them? How can, how would you say this is how you can consider helping? Yeah. And I get this question all the time. And, and my answer is always some version of this same basic answer, which is start where you are, understand what you have influence over. If you work in a large institution, what's that institution doing about its own waste? What is that institution doing about, you know, how it treats its own people? You know, how is it procuring its supplies? Is it thinking about sort of like the supply chain and its carbon footprint? Start with those things and enlist the people that are around you that are working with you in that institution. And then if you feel like you've got a good handle on that, then you can start moving out concentrically from, from your institution and start thinking about the neighborhood in which your institution lives and what influences you can have over that neighborhood and its own carbon footprint and people's ability to participate politically in, in coming to consensus around what we have to do around climate change. And then, you know, the next concentric circle is policy. You know, is, is your institution, can it leverage its, its political capital to influence policy at the state level or, or beyond on essentially uh, strategies to reduce, um, you know, carbon emissions? and you know other issues related to you know the miles traveled of our food and our waste and are there ways to sort of enhance and create a more robust local economy which has less of a carbon footprint you, you got to start where you are we all because we all have a role and there, there's nobody who doesn't who, who's exempt from you, you don't have to go off and start a whole movement i mean if you can that'd be great there are existing <laughs> movements that that are happening join those if you'd like at the individual level, but think mm -hmm. about what you can do in the environment over which you have some control and influence. And typically physicians have a much broader radius of control than they often think about. And mm -hmm. it's about sort of consciously articulating that control over that institution and starting exactly where you are. You know, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything about the climate crisis. And, and many times, you know, she articulates that with what we have to do, it, it's going to take everybody and we can leave no one behind. That kind of 100% inclusive ethic is, is really what we need to work from. So a huge thank you for your time and, and work and, um, and insight, really, because it's wonderful to hear how clearly you articulate these huge system um, challenges and you know how you can see the big integrating themes is, is really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, wonderful to have you and, and look forward to following um, your work in the future. Well, thank you and appreciate what you're doing. And I look forward uh, similarly to following your work. So thanks for what you're doing and keep doing it. It's so important.
Thank you so much for listening today. And if you're ready to join the medical community organizing to advance health equity in the climate movement, please join us at Climate Health Now. That's climatehealthnow.org. And if you can't wait to hear more about Dr. Eiton's work, please check out his fantastic TED Talk called Change the Odds for Health. Thank you so much. Hope to see you next week.